0: Uh, In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We implore you, O Lord, in your kindness to show us your great mercy, that we may be set free from our sins and rescued from the punishments that we rightfully deserve. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Um, Okay, so we are picking up with the sixth commandment. We get everything here. All right. So we're on the sixth commandment, and this is, uh, we're probably going to spend the majority of the time on this commandment. This is Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, which says, you shall not commit adultery. Now, I'm going to teach this commandment differently than the way I have been teaching it. <clears throat> Rather than ending with the treasure or the gift that's being protected, I'm going to start with this commandment Um and the treasure or the gift that God is giving. The best and easiest way to understand this commandment is, is in the reverse way. So the treasure here is the treasure of marriage. God wants us to see the importance and the beauty of a lifelong union between a man and a woman. Uh, we're going to look at some of these texts, but Genesis 2, 18 through 24 is the foundational text. This is the creation of Adam um, and then Eve, and then the union of Adam and Eve. But I want to show you a couple of other texts. Matthew 19 6, where Jesus Himself affirms what Genesis teaches. So Matthew 19 6 says, <clears throat> Well, let me let me go back to verse 4. He Jesus says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning Made them male and female, and said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So here Jesus is reiterating what Genesis 2 teaches, and he recounts it. Uh, exactly. And then he adds this, what God has joined together, let n- not man separate. The other text is Romans 7 two. This is Paul, this is one of the epistles. And uh, Paul writes, for a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. So already here, we're seeing that it's a lifelong union and that the thing that separates them is death. So with that being said, uh, I want to turn to Genesis chapter 2 now. So I wanted you to see the New Testament, that it still upholds the definition of marriage in the Old Testament. But let's look at the Old Testament. Genesis chapter 2, starting at verse 18 Then the Lord God said, Whoops. Sorry, I didn't share the screen. Here we go. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. Uh, I think God is being specific. He's not just saying that anybody is alone, but that man, uh, males, that it's not good for them to be alone. Uh, and, and I think it shows in, in a number of ways we see. Um, uh, problems with this when whenever uh, when people are married a husband and wife are married for a very long time when the husband dies the woman tends to live a lot longer when the woman dies the husband dies shortly after uh, that just tends to happen uh, he's he doesn't do well being alone in this way but it's not good that the man should be alone I will make him a helper fit for him now this is Maybe better translated, not a helper fit for him, but comparable to him or um, uh, compatible with him. Now, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. So that this is the role of the man over creation, th- that he names things. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him or comparable to him. Um, <clears throat> this God puts Adam to go through this exercise of going through all of the animals and naming them and then realizing that, that nothing could fill this void and that he is utterly alone in, in this one way. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of the, his ribs, it's better translated as his side, just something from his side, and closed up its place with flesh. And his side, or the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman, so that the man names the woman, because she was taken out of man. In Hebrew the word for man is Ish and for woman are um yeah, Ish and Isha is uh the the, the name of man and woman in, in Hebrew, so they're very, very similar, even in English. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So just to comment here, when Adam says this, this is the first song in the scriptures. This is the first poetry that we find, or hymn. And it is Adam singing it to Eve, or, or saying it about Eve in this poetic way. And what he's saying is that this is amazing, when he sees Eve he says this is beautiful she is the most beautiful thing i've ever seen i mean he was he was struck he was he loved her she was beautiful to his eyes and he cared about her in this way and he finds fulfillment in her so this is a really amazing sort of thing and now this is a prediction in verse 24 a man shall leave his father and his mother adam doesn't have to leave a father or mother neither does eve but this is a prediction of how things are to play out even in Paradise, and that he will hold fast to his wife, and they'll become one flesh. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so Genesis two twenty four, we see a couple of things here. We see three components to marriage, and let me share that again. Sorry, I closed that too soon. Genesis two twenty four, this last part. He says, therefore, a man shall leave. I want you to look at and pay attention to all the verbs. A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast, more verbs, to his wife. And they shall, what? Become one flesh. So from this, we see that there's three components to marriage. Uh, The first is leave. Leave. The second is hold fast, or you could translate it another way, to cleave, which rhymes, uh, to leave, to cleave, and then to become one flesh. So what does it mean to leave? Well, this is not just, uh, this isn't just physically leaving a certain geographical area or the proximity of father and mother, but this is a public leaving. In other words, this is a wedding, this is a public or legal affair that it is shown to everyone. I am leaving now my father and my mother, and I'm no longer in this house. I'm about to start my own house. So that's leaving. Cleaving or holding fast, uh, to, to cleave to someone means to love them. Like to, we, we say this in the wedding vows. Do you ha- would you take this uh, person to have and to hold? Uh, this To hold and to have is cleaving. That is, there's love there, so that you're leaving, and for the very purpose, there's a public wedding and a clear indication that this is happening to all people, so that everybody knows, and it's before the face of God. There's a cleaving, there's uh, clinging to the woman, and then finally, the one flesh, and very clearly, this means sex. Uh, The human body here becomes one flesh, the husband and the wife in this way. And, and it's a beautiful way. Um, the human body has complete systems and circuits. So for example, you have an entire cardiovascular system. It's closed. It's a closed circuit. Uh, you have a complete respiratory system. It, there's a way it works. You have a complete digestive system. You eat and then it digests. Um, Each system in your body and in everybody's body is complete except for one. And that's the procreative system. Uh, The sexual organ is the only one in everyone's body. That is incomplete in both a man and a woman in male and female. Males have half a part and women have the other half of the part and alone or separate. They're useless. But they when they come together, then it is full, then it is complete, then the circuit is is completed uh they they make a whole, so think of it like a lock and a key. Well, what purpose is the lock without the key, or what purpose is the key without the lock? But together they make this one mechanism or a violin and a uh, violin and a bow. You can't play the violin without the bow you what's the purpose of the bow without the violin, but together, then it makes something. It is one piece. It is one thing. So this is how the scriptures talk about being one flesh in this union. Uh, also, you can understand that from this one flesh union, uh, what is the result? Uh, children. Uh, that's what comes from this union. That's the, the the purpose of this union. I want to show you the exhortation that we say at the wedding. Whenever there's, Whenever there's a wedding in the church... We begin with the invocation the name, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then there's a big paragraph that happens. And this is a, an announcement of what's about to happen and what marriage is. So I'm just going to read it to you. So the pastor would say, addressing everybody, uh, chiefly the, the husband and, or the, the, the bride and the, um, the, the groom. Dearly beloved, we're gathered here in the sight of God and before his church to witness the union... Of this man and this woman in holy matrimony. So that before God and his church to witness. So here's the public leaving. This is an honorable estate instituted and blessed by God in Paradise before humanity's fall into sin. In marriage we see a picture of the communion between Christ and his bride, the church, and our Lord blessed and honored marriage with his presence and first miracle at Cana in Galilee. This estate is also commended to us by the Apostle Paul, as good and honorable. Therefore, marriage is not to be entered into inadvisedly or lightly. This is a warning that you are about to enter into one of the most serious unions and relationships in the world. That is marriage. You can change your job. You can change your uh, career. You can change where you go to school. You can change your home. Uh, That's a big purchase. Uh, You can change your car not your spouse. That is not God's intention that you change your wife or your husband. So this is the biggest decision that anyone would ever make in their life because it is until your heart stops beating or your wife's heart stops beating. Uh, so you don't enter, it in, uh, it, enter into it inadvisedly or lightly, but reverently, deliberately, and in accordance with the purposes for which it was instituted by God. The union of husband and wife in heart, body, and mind is intended by God for the mutual companionship, help, and support that each person ought to receive from the other, both in prosperity and adversity. Marriage was also ordained so that man and woman may find delight in one another. Therefore, all persons who marry shall take a spouse in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust, for God has not called us to impurity but in holiness. God also established marriage for the procreation of children who are to be brought up in the fear and instruction of the Lord so that they may offer him their praise. For this reason, for these reasons, God has established the holy state that blank and blank wish to enter. They desire our prayers as they begin their marriage in the Lord's name and with his blessing. Um, so I want to talk about this. There's three purposes of marriage and it was outlined in in that paragraph, but I want to uh, separate it so you can see very clearly what those three purposes are. The first is companionship. And we get this from Genesis two eighteen. 18. Uh, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for, or one comparable for him. So the first reason for marriage is companionship. The second is procreation, uh, Genesis 1, 28. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. That means have babies, have many babies. And the third is fleeing temptation. Uh, 1 Corinthians 7, 2 says, because of the temptation to immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own, her own husband. Now the first two, companionship and procreation, came before the fall into sin. This was God's intention. Fleeing temptation came after the fall into sin, and that's, that's a later thing, and we'll, we can talk about that. But companionship and procreation, and I'm talking about this in the order in which God gave them. First, he said, it's not good that the man should be alone, and then he talks about children. Meaning, the very first and fundamental reason to be married, the first thing is companionship, and, and not actually children. And now, if you know me, I will never, ever speak against children. I'll never say that, uh, that we should prevent ourselves from having children or despise children or things like this. But in the same breath, I'm saying that the number one thing for marriage that the Lord has revealed it as is companionship. And this is important because whenever I see, when I, when I talk to husbands and wives or fathers and mothers who are struggling in their marriage... Um, a lot of times they leave in their minds the vocation of being husband and wife and they just focus on being mom or dad and then they don't date anymore. <laughs> they forget that that is the chief thing. Uh, so my exhortation always is when, my question is when have you last gone on a date? And it's like, I don't know. Now going to the grocery store together doesn't count. <laughs> That's not a date. Uh, it's It's taking time away, having somebody watch the kids and doing this. Um, the best thing for children, the best thing for children is to see their father and mother love each other, hands down. To see a husband and wife, uh, get along, uh, love and care for one another. That is the best thing for children to witness. And they, because they emulate those things, they imitate that later in life. Okay, uh, I want to talk about, um, some consequences of the fall. I'll just touch on this very quickly. Uh, in Genesis 3, you could read this, and it's verses 16 and 17. For the woman, there are two consequences. There's pain in childbearing, uh, that the Lord says, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. Uh, and the second thing is that there's going to be a power struggle in the marriage. Genesis three sixteen. some of the translations say, your desire shall be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. Uh, I don't know if that's the best translation. It's better translated as your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you so that the, that there's going to be a struggle in the marriage between the wife wanting to take the lead or become the head of the household. And there's going to be a struggle, a power struggle there between husband and wife, um, and we'll talk about that later, especially in Ephesians chapter four and five. Uh, so that's the consequences for the woman in the fall. The consequence for the man is work. Genesis three seventeen, God curses the ground. He says, "Cursed is the ground because of you, and in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Uh, by the sweat of your face you'll you'll eat bread until you return to the ground." So that this is then the consequence of man that he works. And he labors to get a little. He he works all day, he breaks his back trying to get just a little bit of food, and that the ground isn't going to respond well to him. You plant something and it's gonna die. Uh you you put in all this effort and it turns out to, to be for nothing, right? So this is the, the frustration both man and woman are facing. Now what's commanded? In this commandment, you shall not commit adultery, uh it's this commandment applies to both those who are single and those who are married. Those who are single, it's to live a chaste life, a chaste and decent life. Um, to those who are married, it is simply to love your spouse. If you're a husband, love your wife. If you're a wife, love your husband. Now, now we get to the definition of adultery. Um, I... I the reason I started this way, I started with what is before getting into what isn't, where all the other commands I've done it in the reverse, is because I want you to understand that the definition of marriage, this dictates what marriage is. And then from there, knowing what it is, then we can understand what it isn't. Marriage is the only relationship in the world that involves sex. That's it. It's the, it's the only one. It does not happen in the family. Uh, between, uh, uh, within the family. It does not happen with those who are not married. It does not happen between uh, uh, man and and, uh, animal or creation or man and man or woman and woman. But what the definition of marriage is, then this is what the Lord defines as marriage. So then anything that is outside of that, then falls into adultery. So adultery is sex in any relationship that is not in marriage. So sex with anyone uh, who, is not, who you're not married to. So the strict definition when we hear this is, is cheating, right? We, we understand that. The broad definition is any sex outside of marriage with any one or any thing. Um, so what is, I wanna get into what's forbidden in this commandment. Uh, the first thing is divorce. I have a list of five things here. There's many more, but I'm just gonna list five of things, five things that are forbidden here. The first is divorce. Matthew nineteen seven through nine. I'm gonna pull up these verses for you. So they said to him, "Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away?" And he said to them, "Because of your hardness." Of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, that is from creation, it was not so. That was not the intention. That was not the point. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. So that here we have an exception already from Jesus that he says. Uh, Now, the reason for this exception is because somebody has a hardened heart. And the one who has the hardened heart is the one who committed the sexual immorality. Now, I, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, uh, except for sexual immorality, that means the only grounds, the biblical grounds for uh, divorce is adultery, is uh, uh, sexual immorality. Um, that is the biblical grounds that's it it's not that you guys don't get along anymore Uh, it's not that you're just kind of roommates or friends it's not that the passion or the love kind of dies uh it's not that things get difficult it's that one has broken the marriage and joined himself or herself to another now even in these situations uh, when i've when i've seen this as a pastor i always encourage them to stay together but knowing so for example in in one situation if if the man is unfaithful and and the wife remained faithful um the man i say you can't leave the marriage you have to stay because you broke the marriage but uh, that doesn't you you have to be faithful to your wife now but the wife actually has the option then in this as the victim to leave the marriage but even in those situations, I encourage them and I encourage the, encourage the wife to forgive and to remain in the marriage because that's, that's going to be better. And, but if the husband is impenitent, refusing to change and says, you know what, I'm going to continue. Well, then the wife is free. And in those moments when the man says, well, I'm just going to go ahead and keep doing whatever you have to forgive me, then the wife is free to go. And then th- this is the biblical grounds of divorce. Now, where's the hardness of heart? Well, it's in the one who continues to do it as opposed to uh, the wife here. Um, <clears throat> so that's one of the texts. Sorry. The other one is 1 Corinthians 7.15. I'll show you this. If the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. So in other words, this this is what we would call malicious desertion. This is uh, another grounds for divorce that we see in the scriptures. Uh, it's not that the husband is drafted and he goes to fight in a war. And He's not back for a year and the woman is lonely. And so she uh, She joins herself to another Okay, that's adultery um, If he's gone for a year, she needs to remain faithful. He didn't maliciously desert her. He's doing he's fulfilling the duty uh, Or that he's gone for like a month or something, right? If there's a nasty fight and they separate it is that he is gone or she is gone without the intent to return And there's debate on how long this has to be. Uh, The early theologians said about six months. So if you have not had any contact, like you're married and your your spouse goes off and six months you haven't heard anything to a year, then what do you do, right? At that point, you're free to remarry. The person has obviously abandoned you and you need to find someone to help take care of you. So those are the two that we see in the scriptures. Both of them, is that one has left the marriage. So essentially, what was the grounds for divorce that one has left the marriage, either uh, physically joining himself to another woman or physically leaving and abandoning the one. Uh, Okay, so that's the first thing that's forbidden in the scriptures uh, is divorce. And so God intends it to be uh, for all your life, that we in the service say, until death us do part according to God's holy will. That it is, God and, uh, it is God who is joining man and woman together in marriage. What God has joined together, let no man rend asunder. OK, uh, The second is perversion, and this we'll have to spend some time on. Uh, the first of this sort of perversion is uh, homosexuality. I want you to see Leviticus 18:22. Here God says you shall not lie with a male as with a woman it is an abomination and then the next verse says and you shall not lie with any animal and so make yourself unclean with it neither shall any woman give herself to an animal to lie with it it is perversion so here homosexuality and uh, bestiality are joined together even in this perverse act that the lord then calls this an abomination he doesn't say this for every sin that this is that the the gravity of this sin is so uh, abominable and perverse to the lord right we saw what what adam said there's nothing comparable to me right N- nothing that fits but for him to then take up like uh, to depart from this and then take up another man or an animal, something else in creation that God did not create or intend, well, then the Lord says, this is abominable before his sight. Now, one of the common arguments is that, well, okay, this is in the Old Testament. um, So let's, you know, that's gone with, this is why we don't sacrifice lambs anymore uh, or eat shellfish or we can continue eating shellfish and things like this. So homosexuality has passed away. Well, no, this is a moral law. And we know this because it's repeated in the New Testament, Romans 1, 18 through 32. This is a big section here, but I want to read this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Well, the truth is observed in, in creation and in what is seen. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them, for His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made. So we talked about this of the This is the first, or no, sorry, the second class on God and creation. And we talked about the attributes of God, and we talked about creation and seeing the the majestic work of God's hands, and saying this can't be. By chance, this just can't didn't pop out of nothing. Uh, there's a designer here, so that God has then uh, uh, put this, so so that man can see these things and know that there is a God. So the scriptures say they are without excuse, for although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. That is smart, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And now it continues. For this reason, because of their obstinate hearts, their obduracy, their continued rebellion against God, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations, that what is natural and seen in creation, natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women, And were consumed with passion for one another. What's one another? Man and man. Men committing shameless acts with men. And receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. For their sin. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God. God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. So, I mean, there is, it's very, very clear. Yes, Paul is talking about many, many sins that God uh, has handed people over to when they continue and make a habit of this. But in doing this, in illustrating the point, he uses homosexuality as the chief uh, sin, as something to show how, how contrary to nature it is. So he uses this as an example. I want to show you also First Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. <clears throat> it says, says, uh, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who pract- practice homosexuality nor thieves nor the greedy nor drunkards nor revilers nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of god now the the word here <clears throat> um yeah so so do not be deceived don't th- don't think that there is no punishment for this sort of thing and such uh, were some of you in verse 11 okay so here, the scriptures are clear. They repeat what is commanded in the Old Testament in Leviticus, also in the New Testament. Uh, another thing that the scriptures condemn as perversion is a transgenderism or a cross-dressing. So Deuteronomy 22 talks this way as well. It says, a woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak, For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. Again, what's happening here is that um, in this text, it is reversing or despising what God created someone to be. God created a male, uh, male to be males, females to be females, and not to change or swap what they are, what God created them to be. Um, Promiscuity. We also see. We saw this in Genesis two twenty four that a man leaves his father and mother and cleaves to his wife, clings to, so that clinging to multiple women is then wrong, right? Uh, joining yourself with multiple women is now a, a bad thing. Um, Colossians three five is another text. Uh, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. I count these things, the wrath of God is coming. So again, very clear uh, teaching here. Also included in all these things are things like rape or abuse, pedophilia, bestiality, very, very evil, perverted things. Uh, But this is because these things are not in a marriage, therefore they're forbidden uh, simply by the definition of it. Uh, another thing, uh, so I talked about uh, divorce perversion. Now the third is uh, cohabitation. I wanna show you a few verses here, First uh, Corinthians 6. <clears throat> Hold on, let me, okay. Here it says, uh, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And it's in this context where it says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Um, so that ha- so, so this union uh, between man and woman is to happen. It's a gift from God, but it is a, a wedding gift. It happens in the marriage and not apart from it. But here we see that in 1 Corinthians 6. Uh, 1 Timothy 5.22 says, Do not be hasty, or hold on. Oh, yeah, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor, and here's the part, nor take part in the sins of others, but keep yourself pure. I'm just going to show you a number of verses here quickly <clears throat> and then bring it together. Verse 4 Let marriage be held in honor among all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled. That, so, so to defile the marriage bed is to bring someone who you're not married to in it. Or to, uh, yeah, so simply that. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Um, <clears throat> Ephesians 5.3 But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you. As is proper among saints, so for for example, if if it shouldn't be named among us, then it sh- also shouldn't be done among us. Uh, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking. Now, this joking and foolish talk is that of sexual immorality. This is, this is what it's uh, talking about. Uh, it's it's fine to joke about things, but it is not fine to make light of marriage or to joke about marriage, or to joke about immorality in this way. Now. The the issue here... So when a lot of people hear this, they say, well, I want a verse in the Bible that says cohabitation uh, is, uh, is a sin. So I just want that. You shall not cohabitate or something. Um, so there's no verse in the Bible that says that. There's a lot of verses in the Bible that don't... Or, or a lot of things that the Bible does not specifically say. It doesn't say you shall not commit polygamy. Uh, there are times in the Bible that it doesn't have to say that to to list every single sin. Rather, it just says what is, and from there we can draw what isn't. Uh, what cohabitation is, is is that very thing. Um, one of the problems with it is that it gives the impression of sin. So usually when I talk to people <clears throat> who, who are uh, struggling with this or living together before marriage, uh, the argument goes, well, what if we're can we live together but what if we're not having sex and then my first question is usually well are you (laughs) it's typically well no we are okay so that's a hypothetical but the second is well then who cares what other people perceive if we give a hint of sin just leave us alone and uh don't kind of speculate what's going on well this is nearly impossible to do And I try to point out this double standard here. I say, okay, uh, pretend you're married. uh, And I tell the husband, what if your wife stayed the night at another guy's house or stayed the night in a hotel room with another guy? um, And it was just the two of them. But she said, we're not sleeping together. We're not doing anything. Would you trust that? Would you would you be comfortable with that? Or would your mind say, well, why are you even putting yourself into that position? Why are you getting into that situation? Because the only thing I'm going to think is that that's what's happening. And everybody else who sees it, that's the first thought. That's what's going to come up. So what that does is it gives an impression of sin. Now, even if you say there isn't, it's not happening. Okay, in some rare cases, that may be. But to everyone on the outside, what does it appear like? What does it look like? Well then that's that's why we say, well, give no hint of sin among you. If if these things shouldn't be named among us, then we shouldn't give the impression that we're then doing these things. Okay, so that's the I uh sorry. Uh that's third cohabitation. Um Ephesians five four, this is the fourth point, which is sexually immoral humor or mocking marriage. We just saw this text, <clears throat> which is Hold on. Let me show you the text again. Uh, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking. So I- included in this is just mocking marriage. And I know it was a fad for a while. Uh, for, you know, when if husbands describe their wives as the old ball and chain, that's wrong. Don't do that. That you're, <laughs> you're, you're you're, you're mocking your wife. You shouldn't do that, or you shouldn't joke about marriage or say how terrible it is or discourage people from getting married. Okay, the fifth thing is pornography or lust uh, and anything that's included with it. So that's Matthew 5:28 and I'll show you this text here. Jesus says, "You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that the full meaning of this commandment is that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent" Has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So that even uh, the the looking so now this is the purity that God is requiring of us in this commandment that in our action in our words and even in our hearts, so that we can't even look and have this desire for someone who's not your wife, or or your husband, um, and it's this sexual desire. Okay. So what I want to say here is that our culture makes consent uh, the ultimate virtue. As long as we consent. If it's consensual, it's okay. Then you do whatever you want. But the truth is, the way the scriptures speak is that we don't need the consent um, only of one another. But we need God's consent. That he signs off on this and says, this is good. This is holy. Okay, that's the sixth commandment. I want to move on to the seventh commandment quickly. Uh, seventh commandment is you shall not steal Exodus twenty fifteen. 15 uh, I want to talk about private property here that's what this commandment is about and I'm going to talk about communism, Marxism, socialism, Leninism I'm just going to ball it all together I know there's little nuances and differences here but I, for all intents and purposes right now it's one thing just consider it as one thing it's the socio-economic philosophy that claims that the best form of government and society is the common ownership of the means of production, uh, distribution, and exchange. Um, So that the government is the one that distributes and allocates everything equally to all people in all society. And in addition to this, uh, this goal is to abolish social classes, to, to abolish upper class, middle class, lower class, and then here you create this utopia, you give everything to the government and the government distributes it equally to everybody. It brings equality to everyone. This is the root word of uh, communism, is to have all things in common, uh, one thing. Now the summary is that no one has private property or possessions because it's all common. What's yours is mine, what's mine is yours. I wanna talk about three problems with communism or socialism, th- this idea and how it's against this commandment. First of all, it's unchristian. It's against the seventh commandment. If the commandment prohibits us to steal another person's stuff, then that commandment is assuming that your neighbor has stuff of his own that can be stolen. Uh, So this commandment teaches us to protect and support our neighbor's stuff. In other words, it upholds private property. It draws lines around Things that are yours and things that are not yours. Things that belong to your neighbor. But your, what, your, what your neighbor has is not yours. And what you have is not your neighbor's. Stuff is a gift from God to each individual as, as he sees fit. I want to address one real uh, quick thing. Acts 2.45. Uh, 2 a lot of people will bring this up and say, Well, hey, this is the scriptures uh, giving... Uh, the 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 approval to communism, and this is what Christians should be about. Uh, Two forty five says this is after Pentecost, and there's a big conversion of people. They're following the teaching of the disciples, gathering together in church, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. So I was like, ah, communism, and they were selling their possessions and belongings, and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, first of all. It's those who believe this is among the Christians, this is among the church, and they had all things in common. The things that they had in common were the, was what was happening before, the prayers, the fellowship doctrine. They're selling their possessions and belongings, distributing their needs uh, to, to all. Okay, there's a big difference here between that, because that is voluntary. That is people actually giving up what they have in order to help another. That's a church Uh, Helping one another in these ways as opposed to the government taking it by force and then redistributing it Uh, Taking what you have and then giving it over here. Well, that's not generosity any generosity that is forced or at the uh, That you have to do at the end of a the barrel of a gun then is not actual true generosity (laughs) So what acts 2 is talking about is the true generosity of the Christians and not forced or it's not socialized through the government Okay. So that's the first thing. It's it's unchristian, unbiblical. Second, it's it tries to create a utopia, which utopia simply means a place that doesn't exist. Um it tries to usher in heaven on earth. If you want to hear a good summary, a poem about communism, just listen to John Lennon's song that everybody loves, Imagine. Uh and that is 100% communism in uh 3 minutes. It's 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 actually really impressive how he did that and it's beautiful the melody but the message is against the 7th commandment it's against the scriptures but the other thing i want to point out here is that since it's a utopia it's no place it's no place on earth it also has never been created it has never been achieved one of the problems is that communism is unsustainable we are we are unequal. There's an inequality in gifts and abilities and intelligence. We are not all the same. You you guys have gifts that I don't have. I have some gifts that you don't have. You have gifts that differ from each other. You have more or less uh, of of property and possessions. You use your money in one way or another. The The point is that equality, even if you can sustain, you can create it for one day, you can't sustain it to the next day. So f- consider this. If you, if If I take everybody's money and I distribute a hundred dollars to each one of you, everyone today in this moment will have a hundred dollars today on Wednesday. And you, so one of you goes and you buy all the food you need. Another one goes and spends some of that money on clothing or uh, movies or things. Another one just fasts for the day. He lives frugally and he puts the money in his pocket and saves it. Okay. What happens on Thursday? The next day comes and another hundred dollars is given. Now, the first person has now a hundred dollars because he spent the first uh, 100. The second person has maybe 150. The third person now has two hundred, and you keep this pattern after a week, and now there's a huge inequality. One has seven hundred dollars, the other has only a hundred. Uh, the equality achieved on day one is then destroyed on day two. <laughs> So even if you try to redistribute this wealth, it's not sustainable. Um, okay, that's the second thing. It's a utopia. The third thing is that there's, we have this big problem, which is the problem of sin. Communism and socialism begins with the idea that all men are inherently naturally good. By nature, they're good. They reject the idea of original sin. And they think that the problem is not people. The problem is the structure. If you change the structure, then we'll have peace and joy. So get rid of the structure. Dismantle the family. Dismantle the church. Dismantle the government. All these things. And then once you get rid of the structure, we're all going to be fine. But the truth is, uh, they're assuming that we're all going to respond well and be fair in a communistic society. But we won't be. Because people are by nature evil. And we know this because scripture says so. People will still steal. People will still be lazy. People will murder and lie and cheat. Communism tries to solve the problem from the outside and doesn't recognize that it needs to be solved from the inside, from the heart. Um, Also, in every regime, in every place that has tried this experiment, the leaders become dictators. History teaches this time and time again. Just look up Russia, China, Cuba, uh, Laos, Vietnam, Venezuela, Chile, Brazil, so on and so forth. So those are the three things. It's, it's unbiblical. It's a utopia. It's unachievable. And it, there's a problem of sin. Uh, what's forbidden in this commandment? To wrongfully acquire someone's property. Now, I want to talk about two kinds of uh, stealing or cheating people out of things. Two kinds of stealing. There's illegal stealing. This means to rob somebody by force or to break in and steal something in in the night, what they have. To download movies and and music illegally, things like this. That's illegal stealing. But the second is legal stealing. That means to be dishonest or, or overcharging someone. Or giving an unfair wage in fact even in illegal stealing now we have the terminology for this it's called time theft in work which is being lazy or inefficient so let me ask you this what is worse illegal stealing or legal stealing legal stealing is worse (laughs) Because you can punish those who steal illegally. You just take them and you throw them in jail. You rob the store. Okay, now you're no longer a problem to society. But those who steal legally, you can't do anything about It's It's like a mechanic who rips you off. Or or a businessman who sells you a faulty product or something. Well, you can't punish that. I mean, sometimes you can. You can, you can catch that. But somebody who's being lazy, you can't lock them up for that. So of the two... E, the legal stealing, things that you can get away with in this life are actually worse uh, uh, in, in this way. Okay, I was going to talk about uh, why the, mo- <clears throat> the motives for people stealing, but <clears throat> I'll just name them <clears throat> quickly. <coughs> First is, uh, they're, they're lazy. Uh, they want to acquire something without the work. Two, they don't believe in God. Uh, they don't believe that God will provide, so they have to get it through their own means. Three is kleptomania. People are just addicted to this and they, they have a, get a high from st- uh, stealing or taking things. Okay, what's commanded in, in this commandment? To not only leave your neighbor's stuff alone, but to protect what your neighbor has, his possessions and his income. To help him get the best deal. Uh, to, to favor his possessions over your own Imagine if people did this. Imagine if people protected your possessions more than their own. Again, you wouldn't need locks on cars. You wouldn't need locks on your doors. People would look out for your your lawn and, and all of your things. You wouldn't have to worry or second guess your, what you've bought. Um, this commandment requires, it condemns laziness, but it requires hard work. Hard work is implied in the seventh commandment. This means you have, to, you have to have a good work ethic. This is commanded by God that you put in an honest day's work and to not be inefficient. Colossians 3.23 says, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as if you're working for the Lord and not just for man. Uh, Second Thess- Thessalonians 3.10 says, If a man will not work, he will not eat. That God has tied these two things together, the seventh commandment and bread, right? So that you tie them together. And this is how God has created it and wants to sustain it. Uh, This commandment also requires generosity. So we should be generous to our neighbors and help him uh, in all the stuff uh, in, in, in every need. The treasure here is the gift of stuff. There's materials and materialism are not the same. It's not bad to have stuff. It's bad to trust in that stuff to make your life valuable or worthwhile. Okay, Uh, let's go into the Eighth Commandment. Uh, Exodus 20.16 says, You shall not bear false testimony against your neighbor. Uh, The Second Commandment uh, forbids us to speak lies about God. The Eighth Commandment forbids us to speak lies about our neighbor. Uh, we know where lies come from. John eight forty four. Jesus says this. He says, The devil was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a, f- a liar and the father of lies. Uh, you could translate the word father as source. Well, that's what father means, a source. So he is the source of lies. So when you lie, who are you acting like? And doing the work of. You're doing the work of then the devil. Uh, the devil has one attack. Only one attack. And it is lying. It's false doctrine, lying about God. Or gossip and slander, lying about our neighbor. So what is what is forbidden? Well, lying. And there's two kinds of lying. I divide it in this way as active lying and passive lying. Active lying is to deliberately say lies about others and to ruin their reputation. Um, along these lines, what's worse, a whole lie or a half-truth? Uh, and the answer is a half-truth. Because it's believable. So w- whenever somebody's gossiping about someone else, they're not just making things up completely. They're taking what they've done and twisting it and... Putting it in just the right light that it looks worse than it would actually was. Uh, it's more convincing this way. And this is you speaking this and, and doing this. So that's active lying. But the second thing is passive lying. And this means listening to or entertaining lies and gossip and rumors and slander. So let me... Let me give you uh, an analogy here, or just an example even. What if your husband or your wife is in a group of people, right? She, she goes to, I don't know, she goes to, to hang out with friends. And all those friends start to talk, uh, start a nasty rumor about you, the husband. And they start gossiping about you. Uh, and what if she just sits there and then nods her head and doesn't say a word? She didn't actively lie about you, but she tolerated lies about you and gave the impression that she was accepting them. Now, you would you would be upset if she did this. You would be upset if somebody does this to you, right? So this is a very, very awful, awful sort of thing, um, is just to sit there and let the gossip be said. You would want her to do what? To speak up and say, what are you talking about? No, that he didn't do this. Or you... You should talk to him directly. Don't talk about him behind his back, so on and so forth. Okay, so that's lying. The other thing this commandment prohibits, and I, I want to talk about this too, because this is something people are confused upon, is truth. And there's a time when truth is harmful, believe it or not. Many people will say, look, well, I can talk about it if it's true. If it happened and I relay the facts as they happened, then I can talk about it. That, that's a license to just you know air it out. And tell everybody. Um, but that's wrong. If somebody has done something shameful or embarrassing, even though it's true, it does not give you the right to talk about what they have done. In fact, you leave it to the person to talk about what they have done, if they even want to talk about it and they want to bring it up. So for example, if you see a a, a member, another Christian or friend uh, in, of the church, uh, goes out and gets drunk on purpose or an accident, whatever it is, regardless of the motive uh, You see them drunk What you do is you help them sober up You clean up the vomit, you take care of them uh, And then you talk to them about being more careful And then working through this and say, And the person says, oh man, I, I had one too many or I don't know what I was thinking Okay, cover that in love The wrong thing to do is what? to take your phone out and record it or take pictures or mock it or share it with others or, or to say, look, can, uh, g- going to church or to another group of friends and say, can you believe this? This is what happened. That person drank so much and then he ended up vomiting on the floor or in the car and all this stuff. Well, well even though it's true, what are you doing? You're ruining, the, you're ruining that person's reputation. So this is then uh, the problem that even if something is true, it can still be harmful um again quickly i want to talk about why people lie uh people lie out of envy they lie to tear other people down just for the fun of it they also lie out of uh selfish selfishness so to make themselves look better by comparison to say well this person is bad and usually those go together this person is so bad but i'm so good because i didn't do that um or a compulsive liars, a people who just have a habit of doing this and do this all the time. Uh, what is commanded, what's commanded is to defend our neighbor from accusation, to speak well of him, to cover his faults, to explain everything in the kindest way. Ephesians 4.15 says it this way, it says, Speak the truth in love. This doesn't mean that we ignore evil, right? If you see your your friend who accidentally gets drunk, you don't just ignore him or leave him there. Uh, You talk to him, you address it with him. It does no good to address it with somebody else. Uh, So you address it with that person. To ignore evil is lying in the reverse. It means to see evil happen and then refuse to condemn it or or speak the truth when you're called upon to do so. Uh, The treasure here is the treasure of a reputation or a good name. Your reputation is what people... Think. Okay, uh, so your treasure here is the reputation or a good name. Your reputation is what people think about you. And God wants us to establish our own reputation so that you live your life in such a way that people think good of you. They think well of you. Proverbs 22.1 says, A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. To have a good reputation is much is far greater than having a bad reputation with a lot of wealth. <laughs> uh, loving favor, that is respect, is, is better than gold and silver. Now you have to think about this because it takes a long time to build a reputation, to get an image of yourself in someone's mind that's good, but it takes only a few moments to ruin it. That once a reputation is broken or ruined, it could possibly be repaired. But what are people going to think? The world is always going to keep their eyes on on the spot or the place where uh, your reputation was cracked. So, for example, they're always going to have this idea in the back of their mind. Um, so if if you say, I don't know, somebody is uh, mean and, and just an angry person and just belligerent, and you don't know them to be that way, but you're going to have this filter on and you're going to say, well, this person is secretly mean and and abusive to people. And everything you view that person now, uh, you, you view that person, you see that person do, you view through a filter. Uh, it, so if somebody's falsely accused of stealing, he may clear his name and it may not be true, but people are always going to be suspicious of him and say, well, I'm not going to invite him over because if he's a thief or we're not going to put him You know to look at the finances in the church because he may this may turn out to be true This is how harmful it is to have your reputation ruined. You can't undo that once it's once it's there so again, if you If you don't want somebody doing this to you Then you don't do it to another you don't speak falsely or harmful truths about another um, If you don't want that to happen to you, okay That's the eighth commandment. I want to get to the ninth commandment. Uh, Sorry, the ninth and tenth commandment. Exodus twenty seventeen says, "You shall not cover your neighbor's house," Uh, and it continues, "You shall not cover your neighbor's wife, his manservant, maidservant, ox, donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor." Uh, You we separate these into two commandments: ninth and tenth. Well, the ninth is the house, and we make this distinction to say that's inanimate objects or possessions, things, and. Uh, the 10th commandment is you shall not cover your neighbors, uh, wife, manservant, servant, so on and so forth. Those are animate objects, living things. Uh, what's forbidden is covetousness. That is to have a strong desire for something that is not yours, that doesn't belong to you. I want to clarify something here. This doesn't mean you can't aspire to things. This, is, this doesn't mean you can't look at a house and say, you know, I would love that house. That would be wonderful. It's not that you can't desire that. It's you can't desire what God has given to someone else. And as a result, become discontent with what you yourself have. Uh, what God has given to you. This, this is probably the hardest commandment. I mean, we break them all. But I think this is the popular thing is to break this commandment all the time. The, the mark of covetousness. I, I think there's two. One is unhappiness. That unhappiness is a symptom of a covetous heart. If somebody is grumpy all the time or complains all the time, that is a sign that they are discontent. That is a a sign of covetousness. For some reason, our culture has decided that complaining is cool. The more you complain, the smarter you are. If you just gripe and complain and grumble, oh this car, oh I've seen better cars, oh this house, I've I've had a better house. If you do that, or I've had better food, better coffee, it's like, if you're if you're doing doing that, then apparently you you get these social points that oh wow he he really has a great life and he's used to really good things. And so the more I complain, the the better I appear to others. I that's such a bad that that's such a bad attribute. I. I can't stand it. Now, here I am complaining about (laughs) people who complain. But uh, an an anecdote here, this grumpiness or this bad attitude of complaining all the time is like hygiene. If you don't shower or brush your teeth or put deodorant on or perfume or whatever it is, you may not notice the smell, but everyone else does. The the smell you're going to get used to and it doesn't affect you but it's gonna affect everybody in the room. Well, the same goes for grumpiness. It's probably not affecting you anymore that you feel or realize, but it is affecting everybody else. You know this because you probably know somebody who is a complainer or grumpy all the time or has a bad attitude, and you don't want to be around them very often. So if, if you know that about other people and you don't want to be around them, then don't become that person who behaves that way? Uh, okay, that's the first thing is unhappiness. But the second thing is boredom. Boredom is a symptom of a covetous heart. I I could say a lot on this, but I'm just gonna say this little bit. Um, there's no reason whatsoever that we should ever be bored, ever. Do you know how much there is outwardly to explore? how many stars, and how, the, the geography, the different lands, the languages, all these things. Do you know how many things there are inwardly to explore, not only in your own body, down to the cells and molecules, but even intellectually, how much philosophy, how many books are in? I mean, to be bored is to be uh, discontent with the world when there's so much to learn. We don't know everything. How could we be bored with it, right? So anyway, but that's a sign of discontentment, a sign of covetousness. Now, I admit that I get bored, but it's not because God made the world boring. It's because I, my heart is coveting uh, things. And it's the problem is with my heart and not with, God, with what God created. So I want to say this. What, what is commanded in this commandment? through the years, I've kind of changed and refined how I say this, but I realized that the best explanation of the ninth and 10th commandment is this, happiness, that God wants you to be content and happy. This is not God saying, do what makes you happy. That's not the point. This is advocating lawlessness. It's teaching you to to do what brings immediate gratification and, and pleasure and it's wrong. I I think it's very bad advice to tell your children do what makes you happy cuz it's going to lead to chaos. What what if sin makes them happy? What if perversion or violence makes them happy? That's that's wrong. So that's not what this is saying. What this is saying is be happy with what God gives you. That's the point. It teaches us to be content in every circumstance. It doesn't tell us to create our own happiness but to find happiness in what God created and gave us. Philippians 4.11 says this, I have learned, this is the Apostle Paul who suffered a lot. He goes, I've learned <clears throat> in whatever situation that I am to be content, is happy. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound, to have more than enough. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And then he says, I can do all things through him uh, uh, who strengthens me. So that that verse is talking specifically about being content in all situations, being happy. The, the, the truth is that no matter what circumstance you're in, it can always be worse. No, anything that happens to you is better than you deserve. You are very, very blessed. I know... I know you guys and I know members of the church have very difficult lives, have had very difficult things and sad things happen. But when you compare what you have with what you truly deserve, you can see that there's a massive chasm. There's a great disparity between the two to say, I deserve to then be in hell for my sins. And yet I'm not. I am here in this room and there's light and there's people and there's uh, uh, and I hear the joy of God's word and I learn. From, I mean, God shouldn't even be talking to us. He shouldn't even be revealing his word. To, we shouldn't even have a Bible. He, he could have just left us in the dark. He could have just forsaken us and he hasn't. Now, <clears throat> okay, we, we could talk more about that, but I, I just want to give you some advice here. Uh, A good thing to do is to be thankful. That's how you keep this commandment. Just look at what you have. Be thankful for it. And then also pretend to be happy, even if you're not. Even if you're not happy, just fake it. Uh, And then usually what happens is then you will be. It'll follow. Uh, I want to read you 1 Timothy 6, 2 through 10. Well, let, let me just go down to 6, uh, 1 Timothy 6, 6, that says, But godliness, that is keeping the law or the word of God, with contentment or with happiness is great gain. For or because we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be Content, and then it goes on to condemn the the desire to be rich. Not that being rich is a problem. Abraham had a lot of money, Solomon had a lot of money, David had a lot of money. That people had a lot of things, but the love of it is the problem. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Um, but uh, verse eight. If we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Meaning, this is all you need to be happy in this life. Is uh, just. Clothes on your back and food before you. Doesn't even, the food doesn't even have to taste good. The, the clothing doesn't even have to be comfortable. It's just that God gave it to you. And then you're content with it. This is something that is um, uh, remarkable. I've seen members of the church who have gone through s- such awful things. And me, just listening to it, it, it makes me weep, right? And just hearing them and I get tears in my eyes. And yet they're happy. I have it's it's remarkable. I've seen members who have gone through traumatic things, and they say, "Well, uh but I know God is taking care of me. I know God loves me." that's amazing to me. Um, I have not suffered even close to that, and and I look at myself and I say, "Why am I so discontent? Why am I so unhappy or grumpy about these things?" So the treasure God is protecting here in the ninth and tenth commandment is the gift of your happiness, your joy. Really, that you would be happy and content with all that God gives. So I I want to close this this section here. We might go over by one or two minutes here. But I want to tell you that the way we break these commandments, we break them in body and in soul. We break them in thought, word, deed, and desire. In every part and facet, every fiber of our being. And that when we break them, we, we don't just, it's not a clean break. We shatter them. For example, you don't just break one commandment at a time. You break multiple in a sequence that it's like dominoes falling over. Okay, consider adultery. For someone to commit adultery, what, what's the first commandment they have to break? It would be the 10th commandment, to covet your neighbor's wife. Uh, and then um, the second commandment. That is, uh, I- instead of praying in that time of trouble, you ignore God. You don't pray for strength or help. You just give in to it. You break the sixth commandment. You commit the adultery. And then what do people usually do after that? They will lie about it. They break the eighth commandment. And then when they lie about it and they fall into this pattern of life, Then they stop going to church and they stop reading the Bible because it accuses them. They break the third commandment and then they have another God before him. They break the first commandment or somebody who steals. Uh, To steal something, you have to first covet it. So you break the ninth or 10th commandment in your heart. You break the second. You don't ask God for help. Uh, You you steal and then you lie about it, so on and so forth. So do, do you see that when you break the commandments, you're not just breaking one. You're breaking multiple at once. And ultimately, the, the, I, I, I said this two of classes ago, that every time you break one of the other nine commandments, it's because you've already broken the first. You've found that there's something more important in my life than God, than what God said. Here's what God said. Don't do this. And I'm saying, well, I want to do that. And when push comes to shove, I'm going to do what I want to do instead of what God wants to do. Well, then who is God in your life? Whose word has more weight in your life? My words are better than God's. I listen to my own words more than I listen to God's. Now that then is the poor, miserable condition we're in. Uh, James 2.10 says, Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. Um. Romans 3.10. If, if you have been listening for the past three classes on the law, this is much longer. I thought I could do it in one hour. <laughs> it, turns, it turned out to be three hours. But if there's something, if you paid attention, you will realize that you did not come through this unscathed. That somewhere along the line, one of these commandments struck you to the core, to the heart, and you felt your guilt and said, I am wrong. And in fact, if anybody truly, honestly pays attention, and truly believes what is being said, they will realize, I failed. I, I'm not righteous. Romans 3.10 says, no none is righteous, not one. And Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. So if you went through these commandments and realized that you are guilty, even in thought of coveting, even in anger or lust in your heart, if you have outward purity, that does not count. What matters is you keep it from the heart even. What do you deserve? The scriptures say the wages of sin, the payment of sin is death. So remember what I said. I'm going to close with this. The purpose of the law is to show you how great your sin is and that you're already in trouble. You are already in sin. You don't don't take medicine if you think that you're healthy. You don't go on, uh, undergo surgery if your heart is fine. In the same way, you will never see your need for Jesus, the Savior, if you don't see that you are sinful. If you don't think, uh, or, or if you think that you are righteous, if you think you're healthy, you will never take the medicine. You will never want the forgiveness of sins if you don't believe that you have sins. And the point here, I'll close with this. If you minimize sin and think of your sin as little, then what kind of Savior do you need? A little Savior. One who saves you from a little mistake here and there. But if you see that you have great sin, that you have sinned against God in thought, word, deed, desire, you have offended God and sinned against His face, and your sin is great, then what kind of Savior do you need? A great Savior. A greater Savior. And that is the Savior that you have. Um, so I, I want to close here. I just want to give one, uh, announcement about housekeeping stuff here. Uh, I hate, I hate, I hate, I hate to miss class to even skip one week, um, because it throws us off the rhythm and we create another habit or we fill the time and then we forget about it. We're halfway through right now. And the problem is we're not just going to miss one week. We're going to miss two. And that, you know, my heart breaks over that. I'm, I'm so frustrated. But it, this is just how it worked out. What I want to say is that please don't, please uh, pick up again afterward. Because I promise, I promise it will be resolved. I promise that all you've heard to now, it, it we're only halfway there. And it's going to start to come together in the most beautiful way uh, when we pick up with Christ and the gospel after this. So just, that's my my play to you Uh, i'm sorry that i have to miss these two weeks but uh in the meantime uh go back and listen to the other recordings also um uh, email me questions or text me or call me or anything and i'm happy to answer more of these questions throughout uh throughout these weeks okay let's close with the lord's prayer our father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name thy kingdom come